First Peter 3.15 In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And from Second Peter 3.15-17 And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So, um, welcome to uh, everyone. Welcome to our visitors. I feel like I'm going to knock these off in a minute. But, um, you may remember that a few months back, we uh, spent several weeks considering Peter's instruction in 1 Peter 3.15 that Christians are to be prepared or ready to make a defense or to give an explanation if anyone asks the reason for the hope that is in us. We don't just say, well, you know, to each his own. Who am I to judge you? We're to be actually ready to present the gospel, to explain, articulate um, a cogent you know, reason for the hope that we have. And he says we ought to be prepared to do that. We ought to be ready to explain that or to make a defense. And, and so we're talking about being a sent people in, in, in 2022, uh, being a people who are, who are oriented toward you know, mission, toward outreach, toward evangelism, alert to opportunities to share the gospel with our neighbors, with our community. And so this should be a very relevant command for a church that is focused, as we have been, on being a sent people. Um, we're to articulate to non-Christians uh, the basis for why we believe what we believe, why we trust in the one in whom we trust. Recent surveys of American views on religion indicate that a significant uh, number of people have doubts about the reliability of the Bible. So if you just look down through here very quickly, uh, roughly 20% of the respondents that this is non-Christians, like when they, the survey, survey is trying to break out on the non-Christian group, what, what is your barrier to faith? Why don't you believe? Some say, I believe science refutes too much of the Bible. Another 20% roughly, so I don't, I don't believe in fairy tales, the implication being the Bible is about legends and fairy tales and all that sort of thing. And we've spent some time, we did one lesson on uh, science and scripture and how we should think about that relationship and what scripture is trying to do vis-a-vis -vis science and vice versa. And you can go consult that sermon on the website, I'm assuming it's up, or iTunes, or where, wherever those are being put, uh, that we have that, anyway, if you want to consult that. The point I'm making here today is not that again, it's just to say that a lot of people have doubts about the integrity, the reliability of the Bible, of the biblical documents. Um, and then you, you could add to that something that doesn't appear in this survey, that, um, you know, when uh, people like Bart Ehrman, uh, who's made a kind of cottage industry of, of uh, trying to cast doubt on the transmission process of scriptures. A few, few uh, years ago, there was an article, uh, it's on the cover of Newsweek, I think, by a guy named Kurt Eichenwald. And he says basically in that article, none of us has ever actually read the Bible at all. 
Nobody. He says, what we've read is a translation of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies all the way back hundreds of times. And those kinds of doubts about the reliability of Scripture pose a problem. They pose a challenge to anyone who's interested in giving a reason for the hope that lies within us, right? You can't just go, well, so what? <laughs> um, if you the minute you deploy a scripture or share a scripture, somebody says, well, how do I know that's reliable? So we've got to face that question as well. Uh, and, and one way to put that is to say that um, we have to connect the reason for our hope on some level, or be prepared to do this, or where to go if this question arises, with the reliability of the scriptures. So that's what we're going to talk about today and next week, Lord willing. I'm going to make four points, two today, two next week. And uh, there are pl plenty of more that, that could probably be made and maybe should be made. But I want to do a couple of lessons on how the reason for the Christian hope, to use 1 Peter 3.15's language, give a reason for the hope that lies within you, how that is connected. What is its relationship to the reliability of the scriptural text? All right? So our first question this morning is this. Can we have this hope that Peter refers to without the text of Scripture? This ought to be a really dumb question. It's becoming increasingly not dumb in the sense that it's a, still dumb in my opinion, but in the sense that it's kind of like not assumed even by believers. And I know the Bible can be tough. There are parts that we've talked about this in some of these series on 1 Peter 3.15. Some of the commands in the Old Testament, some of the stuff that, that we read, it can be, can be difficult or tough. I'm not trying to, you know, uh, give short shrift to the, the magnitude of some of those challenges. But at the end of the day, we have to ask the question if we can even have this hope that Peter refers to without the reliability of the biblical text. To state the obvious, this hope is based on Jesus. I mean, that's what the text in 1 Peter 3.15 says. In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Then he says, be ready to give a reason for this hope. What hope? The one based on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. All right? That's obvious. Jesus Christ it was the incarnation of God in the world. He died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago for the sins of the world, and he was resurrected from the dead and foreshadowed, inaugurated a more pervasive resurrection that will come at the end of time. That's the claim of the Bible. That's, that's what Jesus is, 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 is executing. That's what He's doing in the world. Let me ask you this question. So the hope is based on Jesus, but how much do we know about Jesus aside from Scripture? How much do we know about Christ aside from Scripture? Almost nothing is the answer. There are references. We would know he exists. We know an individual named Christ or Christus um, existed and that a bunch of people followed him from history. But in terms of primary documents about what, who Jesus was and where he came from and what he taught and what he expected, almost zero. Where do we get that information? We get it from the scriptures. The texts that comprise the Bible, particularly the four Gospels and much of the rest of the New Testament Scripture, but there are even things in the Old Testament, of course, that are pointing to Him, to say the least. So, but we would know next to nothing about Him without the text. In 2 Peter, the second verse that Greg read a minute ago, the second passage, Peter refers to, using this kind of technical term, Scriptures. 
And he's speaking about some of the things that the Apostle Paul had written. I don't know which ones, but he says some of the things Paul wrote, even though he's my bro, they're hard. I got my own ideas about which ones he's talking about. Um, some of that stuff in Romans 9 through 11, maybe. <laughs> There's some tough stuff by Paul. But that doesn't exonerate, I mean, uh, uh, relieve us of the responsibility to read those properly. We can't twist the scriptures, he says, even though they're difficult. We just got to become better students, more aware of context and things like that, and how all the Bible fits together. But notice that he is linking here, this is my point, faithfulness to Jesus, the person, with faithfulness to the scriptures, which he says, of course, must be read responsibly. Look what scripture claims for itself. This is 2 Peter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God. You may have the English word inspired, which just come from, comes from a word, uh, this is theopneustos in the Greek, or, or I don't know, get the ending right there, theopneusto or something. Uh, it's basically to breathe out. Scripture, we're told at the end of the day, though it has human authors, you know, you've got the Apostle Paul writing to, to Timothy and saying, bring my cloak and my parchments and things like that. The upshot, the takeaway, is that God undergirds it all and permeates it all. It is divine. It's a mystery how that happens. I don't believe in a dictation model like Paul became under a trance. And did, there's a whole lot of Paul's vocabulary, which is different than John. The humanities in Scripture, too. They're, very, they're fully human, but they're fully divine, both. And that's why he can say something like, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's breathed out by God. Now, it goes ahead in, in, in this passage to say that it is completely reliable as a guide for living the way, the kind of life, being the kind of human being that our Creator God designed us to be. Scripture is breathed out by God and it is useful or profitable for certain things, this text says. And the kinds of things it talks about are kind of netted out by saying training in righteousness, that big Bible word which just means when things are the way God designed them. Justice, morality, shalom, welfare. Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the shalom of the cities, what that, the Hebrew word there is. The all-encompassing, inextricably connected well-being of everything. That's what we're to seek. The scriptures train us in that. So that the, the, the man of God, the person of God, might be complete, equipped for everything God wants you to do in this world. Now, we've got to see the connection between that and Jesus. Now, I want to disclaim something here, a, a caveat, if you will. To, to be sure, the intentions, the self-disclosed purposes of the Scriptures must be honored by the Scripture reader, by the Christian. We don't have the right as readers of Scripture, somebody else's book, to just go, you know what, I'm gonna, this book better act like I expect it to act like. It better answer the questions I have that I got out of my culture wars or my science class, or whatever else. We don't have the right to do that. We ought to come to this as malleable, humble students and let the Bible, each book of the Bible, each paragraph in each book of the Bible, tell us what it's trying to do. We've got to honor the God, uh, the self-disclosed divine purposes of Scripture. And what are they here? This sort of paradigmatic statement about what, what Scripture is. What's not in this? All scripture is profitable for, what are some things not listed? Anybody? Science? A million science questions the Bible doesn't address. 
How to repair your engine in your car? That's Jack Armstrong. That's not the Bible. <laughs> right? How to plumb your house? Greg Beard. What's wrong with your body? Daniel, though, I think sometimes he probably goes, I have no clue. You're on your own on that one. But, right? Good luck with that. Um, no, there's a million questions the Bible isn't trying to answer. Um, and, and I think many times the problem is, in, in, in the name of defending the integrity of the Bible, many of its would-be defenders, and man, the history of uh, the, the relationship between religion and science really illustrates this, but so do many other areas. We burden it with all sorts of expectations and extraneous freight that it never asked for, and then blame it or blame the people who can't see how it all works together. We created half the problems in the name of defending it. And I could multiply it. I'm not going to go into this, but just some of the categories. Modern scientific questions. That's not what the Pentateuch of, Genesis, of, the, of the Old Testament, you know, Genesis 1 and 2 is trying to answer. It doesn't even sound like that in the language. It's telling these ancient people, the Hebrews, who their God is and who made the world. Not exactly by what mechanisms and when and so on. Um, we assume the Bible's necessarily even trying to address the questions we want it to address. We assume that its varying literary genres can just be ignored, flattened out. And we expect it to speak with this kind of empirical precision that we, a science and technology obsessed society, think all truth must be in the form of. Right? If the Bible acts like it's trying to do that, then in their sections it sounds more like they're that. What do you do with the fact, the fact, the piece of data, that the vast majority of the prophets are written in poetry? So that genre is prophecy. Well, the genre actually is poetry about 80% of the time. It's not, it's not written like a narrative history. Um, you can find all these Hebrew parallelisms and all these other things. The structure isn't chronological half the time. It's a big X, a big chiasm. There's just all sorts of things that we are not allowed as readers to ignore because it can affect the meaning, the, the interpretation of Scripture. Our political agenda is not necessarily that, the same agenda as the Bible. The Bible be, might be saying things about social, society and culture that are different than the questions as we've got them framed on the news today. What if the question's wrong? So we come at it with a blank slate as much as we can, and we avoid doing violence to the Scriptures by demanding they do more or something other than what their inspired authors say they are trying to do. Does that make sense? So that's my caveat, which is way too long. It's like a full point. I think it's captured well, though, in the song, one of my favorite hymns, Ancient Words. I love that hymn. Ancient Words, long preserved for our walk in this world. That's what this is saying. Scripture is breathed out by God, but here's what it's for. It's telling you how to live and how to be a human being. There's a million questions it doesn't answer. God gave us a brain for that. And he made his world comprehensible for the most part. And, and we're to go do that and seek the welfare of those around us, as we learned uh, under Corey's uh, direction earlier. But we can also, if we can, if we can demand the Scripture do more than it's trying to do or something other than it's trying to do, we can also fail the Scriptures by not ascribing to them the full relevance and authority in the areas where they do claim that relevance and authority. Kind of the opposite error. And that's really my point right now. The Bible does claim to be an infallible guide for our lives. You can trust it to train you in righteousness and it equip you to be the kind of person of God completely. 
that God expects you to be and designed you to be. And the Bible does uh, this by telling us how to become part of the story of God's redemption, not only of ourselves, but of all creation. And this redemption culminates in Jesus Christ. So if you look at the verse right before this one, anybody remember? He's talking to Timothy, the evangelist, who's been left at Ephesus to do the work there. And Paul says, from childhood, Timothy, remember he grew up as a Jew, half Jew, half Gentile, but grew up under a Jewish sort of worldview, apparently. From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, what we call the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It was all headed toward Jesus Christ. And Jesus says the same things about himself when he says, the scriptures were really always all about me. So Luke 24, 47, the two on the road to Emmaus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the Old Testament, Jesus interpreted to these two people in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, he said to a Jewish group of opponents, but the scriptures point to me. So what's the upshot of this? The upshot is this, without scripture, Listen to me. We don't have Jesus. You can't say, I love Jesus, but I don't really care about the Bible that much. Because then what you're saying, in effect, is I'm detaching myself from 99.9% .9 of what we ever knew about Jesus. It's in these documents. And if we don't have Jesus, we don't have a hope to defend. <laughs> There's no hope to give a reason for. He is the hub of our hope. And so defending the reason for our hope, to use Peter's language in 1 Peter 3.15, depends upon the reliability of the biblical text. Does that make sense? Pretty basic point. So our second question then is this. Can we trust the texts that undergird the hope? Can we trust the texts that undergird the hope? We're going to be talking about that with this point and then a couple more points about this next week. In other, in other words, another way to word this second question here is, can we trust the transmission process between the original writings, the original documents, you know, the 66, I'm talking about the New Testament more today since we're talking about Jesus, but the, let's say the original documents of the New Testament, right? We don't have those. We have copies of copies of copies and so on uh, way back. Can we trust that transmission process, that copying process? Can we trust that what we have presently in our Bibles is actually what the original authors wrote? That's this question. That's what I mean by this question, okay? Does that make sense? I'm not saying are they trustworthy people to write about it. We'll talk about that next week. Like, are they psycho? Are they legitimate you know, witnesses? That, we'll talk about all that kind of stuff next week. This is just about the transmission process. Is what we have in here what they originally wrote? Or has it been so corrupted we don't even know what the message was? And I think that kind of idea is, is a little more popular in the streets than it used to be because of, of certain publications and things like that. So we're going to have to be ready for that. Now let me tell you something. This is an exceedingly technical question that I'm not even, I'm not, uh, not even, I, mean, I shouldn't use that word, I'm not. Uh, I don't know why anybody would expect me to know all this stuff. This is a whole academic field. Textual transmission is called textual criticism. It doesn't mean you're critical of the Bible. It just means you're the person who goes in there and looks at manuscripts and all that. This is a gigantic cottage industry. 
There are shelves of books in libraries and bookstores on this. And I know this, I just made half of you go to sleep. Here's the problem. Nobody cares about this question until they care about it. It's like a lot of stuff. It's technical. Ah, eh, give me something relevant. Wait till your kid is having problems about something like this. And then see how relevant it is. What about your neighbor who's looking for hope and meaning, but they have real questions about, I don't know if I can trust this. It's ancient. I'm not saying you have to know all this all the time, but we've got to know where to go. And so this is like one of these lessons in 1 Peter 3.15. We're, we're going to have them on, on you know, record here. You can go there as a resource. You've got some titles you can look up that are, that are trustworthy scholarship and so on. So we kind of need to talk about this, though I, I confess to you we'll be, we'll be kind of just hitting the high points. This is like a really... Uh, Lightweight version of this question. Can we trust the transmission process? Let's look at the New Testament text and, and, and kind of use them as our case study here. First of all, it's important to understand some things about the early Christians and what they used as Scripture. The earliest Christians, so think, think latter part of the first century A.D., right? People contemporary with the Apostle John and folks like that. And maybe going into just the first few decades of the second century. The earliest Christians did not have an entire bound, an entire New Testament bound together like we think of, you know, in one volume. So did you ever see a little bound New Testament? Anybody have one of those? When I was little, everybody had them. I don't know. Yeah, we, I, I've got a few in, my, in our library at home. But, you know, it's like, it's like this Bible here. This is the whole Bible, Old and New Testament. But, like, we think of the Bible as a book. Well, they don't have that in AD 100. All right? They don't have that. Mostly what they have, they have, if they're close to a synagogue or something, they've got the Old Testament scriptures in a bunch of different scrolls. Not everybody's going to have that even, but that's, that's what you got. And then as New Testament, what becomes the New Testament's documents, you know, a letter from Paul to the Church of Galatia, uh, the Gospel of Luke, or what have you, as they get those individual New Testament books, as we call them, or documents, they're not really books, Right? A letter isn't a book, but we call them the books of the Bible. Those individual New Testament books, which are hand-copied on papyrus scrolls. Papyrus is a plant that grew, and a lot of Greek and Latin writing was put by hand onto papyrus leaves or sheets of paper. Well, there's individual documents of those circulating toward the end of the first century. You can see evidences in the New Testament where Paul writes, for instance, in Colossians 4.16, and when this letter, the Colossians that we have, he says, when this is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So he's telling them, take the individual letters and pass them around, even though it's down the road a little bit. Make sure they get that and read it and you read theirs. All right? Prior to A.D. 200, so about 100 years after the completion of the New Testament, there is still no complete New Testament as we think of it. In fact, if you had asked some Christian in AD 200 what was meant by the term New Testament, they probably wouldn't have thought of a document at all. They would have thought of the New Covenant inaugurated when Jesus died, you know, like Colossians and Hebrews talk about. A new covenant God made with his people, replacing the old covenant made at Sinai and so on. But they would have had in their mind, oh, it's a single document with all the books in it. They don't have that yet. I'm giving you a short history here. Between 200 and 300 A.D., 
smaller collections of New Testament books. Not all the New Testament, but like, maybe like the Pauline epistles or the four Gospels. Those begin to circulate. And again, hand-copied papyri. That's what our picture is. This is uh, what's called uh, Papyrus 45. There's a, a cataloging system called the Gregory Alland system. It doesn't matter. But it stands for Papyrus 45, and they, there's like, you know, a zillion of these things all over the world. You know, they found them, and they're in libraries, and they, they have a, a cataloging system uh, to, to refer to these. This, this is actually part of Luke 13 and Luke 14 here. And it's part of a 30-leaf or 30-page uh, papyrus collection that dates from the early 200s A.D. Uh, it has parts of the four Gospels and part of Acts. It was found in the 1930s, and it's now in a library in Dublin, uh, Ireland, called the Chester Beatty Library. All right? It's not until the 300s and 400s that we have evidence for the production of complete Greek Bibles. And um, we begin to see those uh, in the form of an, a, a new kind of uh, writing instrument or uh, paper called the Codex, which is a book. They begin to like fold these over and bind them. A little bit before this, but this right here is called the Codex uh, uh, Sinaiticus. And there's four major codices, which is the plural of that. Um, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus um, date from the early to mid-300s, so just two centuries after the close of the New Testament period, roughly. Complete Bible in Greek, the entire thing. Okay? Greek, because remember the people in the eastern part of the Mediterranean were using Greek, so even Jewish people were, were using Greek, like the Septuagint and all that, Matt, Matt Harbour studying academically. This is, this book right here, the Codex Sinaiticus, sometimes it's pronounced Sinaiticus, is, is not only huge as undergirding the Bible and the history of the Bible, if you're into books, this is one of the most important books in history, period. And the, th this is when we get books. <laughs> now, can you imagine your library being a bunch of scrolls? Hey, Monty, can I borrow that scroll? They'd be, they'd be trashed, right? Can you imagine scrolls in that room? The room's already crazy, but um, it'd make it crazier. All right. Now, how many manuscripts of the New Testament, by manuscripts we mean any size fragment that is a piece of the New Testament, from a, a single little shard to a 30-leave scroll to a whole, uh, a whole codex, there, there are over 5,000 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. Over 5,000. Most of these contain only portions. They're not the whole New Testament, they're portions of it. Now, these, the four major codexes that we have, codices that we have, are, are the whole thing. But um, usually it's just a portion of the New Testament. So that, that gives rise to the question for some people of whether what we now have in our present day New Testament was transmitted faithfully, was copied faithfully over the centuries, through the ages, from the original writings down to what we have in our modern New Testament. In other words, is there solid manuscript support? Can, what level of conviction do we have, of confidence do we have, that Philippians is what Paul really wrote to the, to the Philippians? Did it get corrupted? Right? That's a lot of copying. They don't have Xeroxes. Or, some of you don't even know what those are. <laughs> they don't have, you know, your iPhone camera and that, you know. Uh, an image. They don't have either of that, so it's, it's, it's got to be hand copied. How do we address this? 
How do we address this question? One approach is to compare the manuscript support for the New Testament with the manuscript support for ancient works from the same period, contemporary ancient works. So something like Josephus. I was going to grab my Josephus volume and bring it out here because I got the collected works of Josephus, you know, bound like a lot of people do. And what, pretend that's what this is. Here's Josephus. How do we know that what we have as Josephus is what Josephus wrote? In other words, what about the manuscript support for Josephus? Or for Philo, a Jewish uh, exegetical philosopher from Alexandria, Egypt, who lived in the first century just like Josephus did? Or Tacitus, a Roman historian who was a contemporary of New Testament figures? Another those are three first century writers. So what if we compared the manuscript support for our New Testaments with the manuscript support for contemporary ancient works that are non-biblical. It raises the question like this, how do we know that our modern copies of Josephus or Philo or Tacitus or anybody else, those are just three examples of first century writers, are what they actually wrote? I mean, this isn't just a problem for the Bible, it's a problem for everything before a little while ago. How do we know anything about the Middle Ages? There's all kinds of historians dealing with medieval things. There's movies based on that. There's all documentaries, not to mention antiquity. Classics, Greco-Roman antiquity. I mean, the Fox kids are learning about this all the time, presumably, because it's connected with you know, learning of Latin and all that. How do we know anything about anything before five minutes ago? And honestly, this is a problem. C.S. Lewis talks about this presentism. A lot of us don't really care what happened before when we were born, maybe our mom and dad's stories right? You kind of have to if you're claiming to be a people of a book that's ancient, though. You kind of can't have it both ways. So at least have a little patience with questions about history, because half of what we think about what we think, we inherited. We walked into a story when we were born and came of age. And looking at history helps us to sort of look at that more critically and honestly, I think. Uh, it relativizes some of our own kind of, that's normal, that's just assumed. Well, actually not. That's not what 98% of humanity assumed. You are. You're going to universalize your little experience on the whole universe and history? History helps us with that kind of humility, I think. But we're reading historical documents, so how reliable are they? Well, let's do that, that comparison now. How does the quality and quantity of, of the manuscript supporting the New Testament compare with that for other first century writings? And here's the answer, okay? This is the non-technical answer. In short, New Testament manuscript evidence for reliable transmission is, to put it mildly, overwhelmingly superior. It's not even close, not even the same ballpark with that of other ancient works. You know, people say, well, Julius Caesar did this, and Augustus Caesar did this, and you know, Antony and Cleopatra had this thing going on, and blah, blah, blah. I and mean, all this which rolls off like we just know it's true. There's movies, but nobody's questioning that to speak of. Where'd you get all that? You got it from works which are much less well attested in terms of manuscript evidence. It's not even close. I'll give you a couple examples, and then we'll wrap it up. For the Jewish historian Josephus, again, pretend I'm holding up the, Jew, the Josephus volume. 
There are 134 manuscripts containing portions of the Greek text of Josephus in existence. 134, sounds like a lot. Most of them date from the 11th century AD at the earliest. So you had, it's a thousand years from the original to the, the manuscript that we have. When we know he wrote first century, we don't have a manuscript in existence until a thousand years later. That's the oldest one. I don't hear a lot of people saying, Josephus really didn't write that. They may say he, he's not very credible as a person. That's a different question. But we, we, we have authorized texts of Josephus, volumes of everything he wrote, based on much less manuscript evidence. For the Roman historian Tacitus, one of the most important historians for the period, especially of Roman antiquity in, in the first century, Guess what? We are dependent upon a single 11th century A.D. manuscript for the modern text of Tacitus' histories. A single manuscript. That's how we get Tacitus' histories, a work he wrote. Not only are there over 5,000 manuscripts of portions of the Greek New Testament, attesting to every single one of the New Testament books, and some dating from the late 1st century or early 2nd century. But we also have complete manuscripts of the entire New Testament from just two centuries later. That's what Codex Vaticanus and Sinaiticus are. All right, let me tell you one other thing. This is really cool. This is all really cool to me. But, um, thank you, Nick. Pay you later. Check this out. The New Testament documents, you know, obviously were, were, I mean, not obviously, but this is the case, were rapidly translated into a bunch of other languages, written in Greek originally, but very quickly they start getting translated into Latin, because, you know, you have the western part of the Mediterranean where Latin is king. Um, they're translated into Coptic, an Egyptian Nile River language, Syriac, and on and on and on. Yeah, a bunch of different languages. All right? So we got a lot of other manuscripts not in Greek from ancient times. Moreover, the New Testament was widely quoted in the writings of early Christians. I mean, really early. Like people like Irenaeus, who was a, a bishop in the church at Lyon in southern France. In 180, he wrote a book called Against Heresies, a very famous book about theological orthodoxy and so on. He quotes the New Testament. He quotes 1,075 different passages in the New Testament, just in his book. Augustine, who wrote in the, the 300s and early 400s, his works, Augustine, the famous you know, North African theologian Augustine, his works include, and I'm not kidding, 29,000 quotations from the New Testament. So, I'm going to quote now this book by uh, a, a British uh, textual criticism expert and a believer um, who, who teaches at the University of Oxford. If one were to imagine that we were without even a single manuscript of the New Testament in Greek, like assume hypothetically, this is hardly the case, we got over 5,000, imagine we didn't have any. We got this modern Bible, we don't know where it came from. It would nevertheless be possible to reconstruct the New Testament almost entirely from the combined witness of early versions of the New Testament in other languages and quotations from and discussions of the New Testament in early Christian preachers and teachers. In other words, they're quoting it all the time. As Paul said to the Philippians, and you get you know, three paragraphs, something like that. It happens all the time. 
You could reconstruct the entire New Testament even from that. When we factor in the numerous good and early Greek manuscripts which do exist, the vast numbers of New Testament manuscripts produced down the centuries, and begin to compare the transmission of the New Testament with other literary works of the period, the wealth of material undergirding the text of the New Testament, as it has come down to us, becomes overwhelming. That's pretty awesome. That's not what you hear out on the street. Now, does that mean there aren't some manuscript discrepancies? It does not mean that. And we shouldn't fall prey to easy solutions that are dishonest. And that is a real problem, folks, in the history of Christianity. Some people love the cause more than they love the truth. And they're willing to look the other way and accept bad scholarship and repeat like urban legends, these tales that are, you go back and you go, there's no there there, actually. We don't want to do that. In fact, I read a book... Uh, the past couple of weeks, called Myths and Mistakes in New Testament, New Testament Textual Criticism. This is by theological conservatives, also New Testament scholars, trying to root out the, the, the chaff from the wheat here. There's a lot of kind of faux defenses that preachers repeat all the time because they got them from some book, and they repeated it from somebody, and you go back and you look at it with the actual scholarship. No, there's, there's some manuscript discrepancies. You know how 2 Peter 10 says the whole earth will be burned up? The best and earliest manuscripts say it will be exposed. The works will be exposed. They even use the word burned up right there on that, in that phrase. It's a manuscript problem. Um, there, there are some of those. All right, let's, let's, be, let's be honest about it. Still, uh, in general, the New Testament's textual transmission has been solid and vastly more so than the transmission process for any other ancient works. And nobody's sitting around going, we can't believe anything before the 1950s. It's just a blank. Nobody says that. You can't even be educated without knowing things in the past. You gotta, you, the minute you start going, well, we got that idea from this person. Where'd he get it? You're, you're already there. You're already beyond uh, the oral history of your own parents and just a, a, going to a class for a couple months. So... We, we need to not be harder on the biblical documents than we are on everything else. In fact, we ought to be a lot harder on them if we're going to go on the weight of, of textual evidence. So here's what uh, these guys say. Even the most textually corrupted of our manuscripts and editions of the Bible still convey the central truths of the Christian faith with clarity and power. In every age, God has given His people a text that is more than reliable enough to know the saving work He has accomplished through Jesus Christ. All right? And if you don't like New Testament scholarly nerds, how about some Wikipedia? <laughs> well, I actually love Wikipedia. I have, though, one or two times. You know, it's democratically edited, but it's got footnotes in the whole bit. So usually, if, if an article's been there a while, it gets corrected. I was actually reading one one time, and somebody was trashing some press person, and it got fixed like, Five seconds later, I refreshed and it's fixed. I knew that happened. I've never actually seen it except that one time. Anyway, here's what, here's what uh, a Wikipedia article says about this. The New Testament has, preserved, has been preserved in more manuscripts than any other ancient work of literature. It's the tops. If we're talking about, is what we're reading what they wrote? It's the tops. With over 5,800 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts cataloged, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, 9,300 manuscripts in various other languages, including Syriac, Slavic, Gothic, Ethiopic, Coptic, Armenian. The dates of these manuscripts range from 125 AD, 
that's P52 papyrus, which is the oldest copy of a piece of the Gospel of John, to the introduction of printing in Germany in the 15th century with Gutenberg Press and all that. All right, that's all I got. It's taking too long. You have no idea, though, or maybe you do, how long that should have taken. I mean, this is a really tech... We've got, though, to be ready to talk to people. And this kind of thing is becoming more and more prevalent, um, surveys say. We need to know where to go. We don't have to memorize it all. I don't have it all memorized. We need to know where to go and know that it's not the end of the world if somebody questions whether your Bible reflects the actual originals uh, accurately. We can be confident that the story of the Bible is solid. It's, it's portrayed to us solidly. Thank you for your attention today. We're going to now uh, stand together and sing a song. If we can help you in any way, let us know by coming to the front. Let's all stand together and sing.